One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Today is Saturday, February 15th, 2020. On this day in 1976, 12-year-old Mark Stebbins became the first known victim of the Oakland County child killer. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Due to the graphic nature of today's crimes, listener discretion is advised. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. Today we're covering the Oakland County child killer, a serial murderer in Detroit who kidnapped children and remains unidentified to this day. Let's go back to Ferndale, Michigan, a verdant suburb of Detroit, on the morning of February 15, 1976. Clean-cut 12-year-old Mark Stebbins was beyond ready to leave the American Legion Hall. His mom had a work party, and she'd brought Mark and his 16-year-old brother Michael along. The boys had enjoyed a few games of pool, but it was nearing time for Mark's favorite TV program, and he was itching to go. Mark asked his mom, Ruth, if he could walk home from the party in time to catch his show. It was early afternoon, and there were plenty of people out, so Ruth agreed. Mark headed eagerly for the door. On his way out, he passed his older brother, Michael. Michael asked if Mark wanted him to go along. Mark grinned and declined. He was old enough to walk by himself. Michael laughed and watched him go. Then he went back to his pool game. A dark-haired man left the hall shortly after Mark, but Michael thought nothing of it. Michael and Ruth stayed out into the evening. Around 7.15 p.m., Ruth called the house to make sure Mark was okay. There was no answer. Ruth began to get worried. She and Michael returned home only to discover that Mark wasn't there. They tried to remain calm. Mark was a tough, adventurous kid with dreams of becoming a Marine. He was probably just running around the neighborhood or having fun with one of his friends. By 10 p.m., however, Mark still wasn't home, so Ruth called the police. Officers scoured the neighborhood. They knocked on doors and looked for evidence of Mark along the route he should have taken from the American Legion. But to Ruth's and Michael's horror, no one saw any sign of him. Not until four days later, that is. On February 19, 1976, Mark Stebbins was found at the intersection of Ten Mile Road and Greenfield, about four miles from the American Legion. He was positioned in the snow with almost religious care. There were rope burns on his ankles and wrists. Investigators determined that he had been violated with an unknown object and later killed by asphyxiation. Ruth and Michael were crushed with grief, as were many in the surrounding community. They wanted the perpetrator to be found and brought to justice. 
Tragically, the Michigan State Police, who took charge of the case, reported no significant leads. Ten months later, however, a second tragedy brought the threat back into the public eye. On December 22, 1976, 12-year-old Jill Robinson ran away from her home in the Detroit suburb of Royal Oak after an argument with her mother. The day after Christmas, Jill's body was found displayed ceremonially beside a freeway, her face nearly obliterated by a gunshot wound. Once again, the community was gripped with terror, and things were about to get still worse. Only a week later, on January 2, 1977, 10-year-old Christine Mihalik disappeared while walking to 7-Eleven to buy a magazine. She was found four days later, laid out in the snow, just like the previous two victims. State police could now say with relative certainty that they were dealing with a serial killer. What they declined to state, publicly at any rate, was that they were also looking for a pedophile. The fact of Mark Stebbins' sexual assault was kept hidden from the public, but it was definitely on investigators' minds. On January 28th, one week after the third victim's body was discovered, police arrested two men for sexually assaulting a minor. One was stocky, bearded Christopher Bush, the 26-year-old son of General Motors Vice President H. Lee Bush. The other was Christopher's dark-haired cohort, Gregory Green. Both men had criminal records showing they'd repeatedly assaulted young boys, so police questioned them about Mark Stebbins using a polygraph exam. During the test, Christopher admitted to being attracted to underage males. He also said that he and Gregory had planned to kidnap, imprison, and molest innocent victims. But he claimed that they had never acted on this plan and swore he had nothing to do with Mark Stebbins' death. As for Gregory, he also confessed his illicit sexual proclivities. But unlike Christopher, he didn't claim ignorance of Mark Stebbins. On the contrary, he stated multiple times that Christopher Bush had killed him. Both men passed their polygraph exams, yet for reasons which remain unclear to this day, Gregory's testimony was discarded, while Christopher's was used in his favor. Gregory was convicted of assaulting a minor and sentenced to life in prison. Christopher was released on probation. Neither the victim's families nor the public were aware that a suspect in the murders had been questioned and released. As far as they were concerned, the killer was still out there. And they were right. Coming up, we'll meet the Oakland County child killer's final victim. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now back to the story. 
On January 28, 1977, Christopher Bush and Gregory Green were given polygraph tests and questioned about the murder of 12-year-old Mark Stebbins. Gregory said his acquaintance was the killer, but despite the fact that he passed the polygraph, Christopher was allowed to go free. Less than two months later, the Oakland County child killer struck again. On March 16, 1977, 11-year-old Timothy King was abducted near the Detroit suburb of Birmingham. He was found six days later, displayed ceremonially in a ditch several miles away. Like Mark, but unlike the killer's female victims, Timothy had been sexually assaulted. This time, there was a lead. Witnesses reported seeing Timothy talking to an adult male with white or possibly olive skin and thick, dark hair. They also recalled seeing the pair standing next to a small blue car just before Timothy's disappearance. The media circulated sketches of the suspect. Police formed a dragnet, stopping hundreds of vehicles that resembled the one witnesses had described. For weeks, families of the victims waited desperately for news, and other parents prayed for their children's safety. Yet during this time, police didn't follow the one lead they already had, Christopher Bush. Perhaps as a result of his family's wealth and power, Christopher was allowed to continue living in the area unbothered, while investigators told the families that there was no news. As a result, those most closely connected to the victims had no idea of the potential development in the case that came over a year later. On November 20th, 1978, Christopher Bush was found dead in his home of a gunshot wound to the head. He was holding a 22 caliber rifle. Christopher's death was officially ruled a suicide and families of the Oakland County child killer's victims knew nothing about it. For the next 30 years, they remained under the impression that the Oakland County child killer was still at large, with no further leads in the case. In July of 2006, however, the case came unexpectedly to life at a polygrapher's convention in Las Vegas, Nevada, Patrick Coffey, a childhood friend and neighbor of the fourth victim, Timothy King, was pursuing a career in polygraph testing. Patrick attended a seminar taught by the respected expert Larry Wasser. Afterward, he told Wasser that he'd been inspired to take this career path by the unsolved case of the Oakland County child killer. According to Patrick's later testimony, Wasser was clearly familiar with the case. When Patrick inquired further, Wasser admitted that he had administered a polygraph exam to the killer. Patrick was stunned. He reached out to the family of the victim he knew, Timothy King, and told them what he'd learned. With the help of his testimony, the Kings launched their own investigation. They got access to many police records they'd previously been denied and learned that Larry Wasser had, in fact, administered a polygraph to Christopher Bush. By extension, this meant that Wasser believed that the 26-year-old bearded man was the killer. At least, that was the family's strong suspicion. 
But Wasser refused to answer any questions about the case, and despite the King's efforts and renewed publicity, the identity of the Oakland County child killer remains contested to this day. Tragically, this leaves the victims' families in a state of perpetual grief. The Kings try to find an outlet pursuing the truth. As for Mark Stebbins' brother, Michael, he still thinks about the day he let his little brother walk home alone. He wonders if he decided to go with him, whether Mark might still be here. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. For the full story of the Oakland County child killer, check out ParCast's show Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, which did two episodes on the terrifying mystery. Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Megan Dane, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 